Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Vision. This is your host, Greg Nielsen. I'm the president and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting, where we work with nonprofit organizations nationally, primarily in the areas of board excellence, strategy, and organizational development. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm especially excited this week. We took last week off from the podcast as I was doing some traveling. And we're picking it up this week with what is always a popular topic on the podcast, and that is fundraising. So we're going to be talking about building your fundraising career and also sustainable fundraising practices for nonprofit organizations. Our guest this week is Mazarin Trays. Mazarin is from Wild Woman Fundraising. Mazarin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to talk with you about sustainable fundraising. It is a pleasure to have you here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background? Sure. Um, so for about 20 years, I've been involved with nonprofits. I've co-founded a nonprofit. I've worked my way up from development associate to development director. And um, in the last 10 years, I've been consulting. So I've done everything from writing appeal letters, appeal campaigns, e-newsletters, and reports to doing strategic planning and uh, board development as well. Um, my favorite things to do include helping foundations succeed with uh, getting their grantees less dependent on grants. And so I've created 10 plus e-courses, a variety of webinar recordings and online conferences. So I've written three books as well. I've done a lot, um, but all in the aid of helping nonprofits become truly sustainable because if the government steps away from providing services, we have to be there to fill in the gaps for our communities. Absolutely. Now, I know talking to you before the podcast recording, you use a phrase called sustainable fundraising for mm -hmm. nonprofits. And I, I'm just curious if you could maybe tell us how you define that. Um, and then I'd like to probe that a little bit deeper. Sure, Greg. So what happens if you sit on a stool with one leg? You fall over. Right. What about two legs? Uh, I'm pretty sure you're still going to fall over unless you have better balance than I do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So <laughs> I hope everybody here gets this metaphor, but if you don't, let me spell it out for you. Okay. If your funding strategy is dependent on one government grant or one uh, year-end appeal or one major donor, I've got news for you. You're about to hit your ass <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> Understood. So, that's sustainable fundraising means let's have 10 legs on the stool. I know it doesn't seem very like appropriate for a stool, but on the other hand, <laughs> you're not going to fall over. <laughs> That's true. Much better balance. Yes. <laughs> So, I mean, that's part of it. Having many multiple streams of income, everybody knows that's a good sustainable financial plan for you personally. But even more than that, um, thinking about how you treat your people because they are your nonprofit. They are what makes your nonprofit go. You're a machine made of people. And if you have consistent turnover in the fundraising role, it costs you 117% of what you're paying that person to replace them. And that's assuming that they are uh, gone for a month. And then there's another person coming in. We all know it's more like six months to a year before you get another person in. So, Absolutely. so when, we, when we talk about sustainable fundraising, there's a couple of different components to what you just said there. There's, yeah. the, um, there's the number of revenue streams for the organization and making sure that there is some diversity there and some balance there. Um, and then there's also how you, how you um, lead, grow, and retain your talent. So maybe let's let's take them one at a time. The oh, yeah. diversity of, of revenue streams. Um, 
what are you seeing in the landscape right now? I think that, you know, it depends on organizations, obviously, but how, um, how are sustainable organizations approaching that, that task? Yeah, um, well, they are definitely looking to expand their options and do experiments. So the organizations to really consider looking at are um, the national ones and see what they do. So there's, um, you know, year-end appeals are still a thing for nonprofits, but we are finding increasingly that um, the crowdfunding proliferation, I mean, there's over 1,200 crowdfunding sites now, um, has made it more difficult for people to feel the urgency of giving to your cause. So we have to innovate. We must innovate if we want to survive. So you can do a crowdfunding campaign for your nonprofit, but you have to be prepared to like do all the follow-up for that. Um, so people are trying that. Other people are just trying to uh, get more grants, but that's really not sustainable. So the bright light at the end of this very long tunnel is earned income streams. And then most people don't know that the biggest and most you know successful nonprofits such as hospitals and universities earned income is their main revenue stream right so i think it's always and, and this always comes up when i'm working with boards or talking with organizations particularly in strategic planning is um how well do they understand their overall business model and that includes mm -hmm. their earned revenue and that includes their philanthropic revenue as well. So when you're talking to nonprofit leaders and fundraisers, how do you how do you coach them on balancing the need to grow both sides of the both sides of the equation? I have a presentation that I like to do called Next Level Fundraising. And in it, we go over some of what is key inside the Blue Ocean Strategy book, as well as um, the Six Thinking Hats by Edward de Bono. Mm -hmm. And for both of those, right, um, that you know, it entails many, many concepts, which I don't have time to go into here. Um, but what I will what I will say is that look around you in the for-profit world and think about how could we out from everyone else ask for money right now and maybe even for our particular disease that we're working on or a particular educational nonprofit, you know? So um, it could be everything from, uh, I think we're going to try to do an innovative partnership to um, if you are a, uh, a, an animal nonprofit, have we thought about opening up a thrift store? Right. Um, or even an online thrift store. You know, there's just so many little tools you can use to like start your gears turning. What if everybody in your organization read a business book once a month and you all sat around and talked about it? You know, I mean, just little things to start getting you using the brain power inside your organization instead of just, just grinding along and doing business as usual. And then thinking, how can we pay people more if we're asking them for more brain power? What could we do to get good people to stay? Right. So I think the one of the things that one of the questions that comes to my mind as you talk about that is risk. And mm -hmm. how do you, um, you know, I, I know this comes up a lot with boards as well, but when you're working with um, nonprofit executives and board members, how do you talk to them about the need for responsible risk as a key part of innovation? You know, th th it's really important for sustainability that we try new things but not everything is going to be an ace. Not everything is going to be a gold mine. How do we get comfortable as an organization in our culture with, um, with taking on responsible risk? Well, you look at the business plans that are out there and your local SBDC will have them, a small business development center, but also you can, there's books about this as well. And I've actually got a whole presentation just on earned income streams that nonprofits can try mm -hmm. as well as like, um, 
you know, a series on entrepreneurial thinking. But um, one of the things that I like to tell people is like, and I go in my presentation from least financial investment upfront to greatest financial investment. Okay. And I actually helped a nonprofit in um, New York City take their uh, voluntourism and edutourism program to the next level. And so they are called the Global Autism Project. And what they do is they go to different countries and help communities learn how to accept people with autism oh. so that they don't beat them, leave them out in the cold, kill them. You know, there's just so much going on that, you know, desperate people make desperate choices, you know? So um, once people start to understand autism, they can see how this person, this individual can fit into their community. And so what the Global Autism Project does is they take, um, that what we did together is we went to uh, universities that teach autism therapists and said, hey, want help with your finishing your exam? And then finally, would you like to go create, you know, more cultural competency inside of yourself by going to these different countries like um, Indonesia or India? or other parts of South America or Africa and so on. And so now they're all over the world. I've been their monthly donor. They're doing incredible work um, and they're saving lives. They're literally saving lives. Um, and they have gone from 35,000 a year to half a million dollars a year, which is a significant jump over 10 years. And it started out with the founder just like sleeping on people's couches. So, you know, it, transformative thinking for them. And that's the bulk of their income is these edgy tourism that not only helps people experience other cultures, but it also makes them better therapists. So it's program work. It's not just let's go see how we can make some money. Right. And that ties into my next question, which is th that's a perfect example you just cited because it is tied to their mission. And I'm, I'm just always cautious, always trying to strike that uh, correct balance in talking to organizations about being innovative and trying new things, but avoiding um, grab bag or avoiding mission drift or activities that are going to take you farther away. I wonder how you, how you talk about that and how you help balance the need to try new things, but also um, be responsive to, to what the core of your mission is. Yeah. So, I mean, there's very tiny little ways that you can take little risks. You could try getting cafe press to print your t-shirts and then you just print them on demand. You don't even have to put in a big you know, order up front, like a lot of people do. Um, you could also try, you know, just uh, thinking about experimenting with your e-newsletters, your year-end appeal, hiring a consultant to write two versions for you and send out half to one half of your lift, one half to the other, and then send out three emails and see which like subject line does better. And, you know, do more than one appeal a year. Like there's little things you can do. Any nonprofit can do that. Um, literally anyone. And that's something that I work with people to do. And so for uh, the year end in 2019, I worked with Jacksonville University and we actually got them from 37,000 in a year end gifts to 90,000. So that was a 144% increase through letters and uh, emails that we put together. And that was something that they hadn't really been tracking. You know, how well does this email do? And you know, right. what's the story we can tell that will be most effective? And you know, we made a story about a kid who's working on desalinating seawater with, uh, uh, with sea sponges and everyone loved it. They loved this kid, you know? And so, um, it really worked out and I'm just so proud of that work we did together. And that was experiments. I, I love that. Um, I love that idea about segmenting and testing different messages, because I think that that's something that can resonate with nonprofits of all different sizes. You don't have to be a major national or international nonprofit 
um, to try things like that, but to take segments of your donor list, and particularly if you're um, planning an appeal or planning a letter, and try out different messages or use different stories um, as part of different segments of your campaign and see which ones resonate most, which ones generate buzz, which ones generate results. I, I think that's a very tangible suggestion that people listening to the podcast can, can take away with them. Yes. Yes. And if you want more templates and tools about how to do that, I totally have a whole page on my website devoted just to appeal letters. So maybe we can link that in the show notes or something. Absolutely. So I'm wondering though for, and I'm going to put my small to mid-sized nonprofit hat on. That was my background as a nonprofit um, executive. And I hear things like we should try crowdfunding or we should try this or try that. And I immediately, uh, and I know several of our small nonprofit listeners are having the same reaction. I immediately think, oh, I would love to, but with what army? <laughs> it's just me or it's just me and my board. Um, how do you talk to nonprofits about building the internal capacity to try different things? So for the executive director that may already be stretched in terms of time from just the activities that they're doing on a daily basis, how do you create that space to be innovative and to try? Yeah, that's, so what's useful to do sometimes is just uh, to uh, think about your strengths. You know, I believe in strength-based leadership, strength-based coaching for executive directors, and I have done that with a New Jersey um, Catholic school, for example. I help with their executive director to learn all the strengths of her team and then redistribute tasks that she was doing based on each other's strengths, and as well as really appreciating what people brought to the table. She had a very much uh, achiever personality, and there was somebody in her office who had a relator personality. And so um, achievers like, okay, let's get things done, you know? And relators- <laughs> I can relate like, to that one. <laughs> yeah, tell me about your family, how's yes. it going? And yes. so they were turning each other off. Right. And so I helped her turn on again and really sit down and learn who this person was. And then there, you know, and she was the director of their events, and then their events just totally performed way better because, you know, she had been able to plug into what motivated this individual, um, as well as, you know, other people on her team engaging her alums, you know, she thought, what does he really do? He just walks around and talks to people. Well, this guy had, you know, these different other strengths that she could then tap into and suddenly alums were more engaged mm -hmm. and they were getting major gifts more. Um, and so, uh, you know, it comes down to redistributing tasks based on people's areas of greatest joy and, you know, satisfaction, right? So if you think about the homie method, you go from rest to action, to clarity, to satisfaction. You don't have to worry about happiness, but you have to come to full rest before you can get clarity to see what the right action is for you. Okay. And so that's what, unfortunately, a lot of us in the small nonprofits are like, we never come to rest. Yes. <laughs> And you must do that. So I really encourage people to take a real weekend, you know, and journal or talk with a therapist or process in some other way. What do I really love doing? What do I hate doing? And how can I pass off more? And I've actually done that as a business owner as well. And I have a VA who takes care of so many things for me and it's fantastic, but I, I do need outside counsel. I pay for coaching, right. you know, because I believe in getting better for the people that I work with. So I highly encourage people to work with a coach um, just to like really expand their possibilities for what they don't have to live in that high fight or flight response anymore. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I, I, I have the same approach when it comes to the clients that I'm coaching. You know, one of the things that I tell the executives that I'm coaching is this is about putting you and your team in position to be successful. 
And that, mm-hmm. you know, that's really what coaching boils down to is tapping into your strengths and putting not only yourself, but also those that you're interacting with in, a, in the best position to succeed. Because as you said, that's when, that's when you're able to retain talent and keep those vital members of your team. Right. And if you're not helping them go to be where they shine, they're going to go somewhere else. And Absolutely. as we said in the beginning, that's going to cost you so much money. Absolutely. Well, now I want to flip to the other side of the coin, which is the retaining talent. And for fundraisers out there who may be listening, responsibly growing their own career and taking ownership of their own career. Mazarin, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know when I say that we have issues in the fundraising profession with burnout, with turnover, with lots of different um, expectations, unrealized or unrealistic expectations out there. Um, the work that, I, that you're doing uh, in terms of growing the fundraising profession is, is vital, but what are you seeing in the landscape? What do you see out there? Well, I'm seeing people straight up lying to people to sign on. I'm seeing uh, people saying, okay, you can be director. Oh wait, now you're gonna be manager. Okay, actually you're gonna be assistant and would you like taking like a $30,000 pay cut from what we told you we were going to pay you. Um, so that's one thing I've seen, a shady thing that I've seen. Um, I've also seen people, you know, executive directors walking into situations of people just straight up lie and said, oh, we're great. Yeah, come be our executive director. And then they walk in and suddenly everything's an emergency. I'm sure you've never heard that before. I have, yes. And it, it you know, that goes back to, you know, A, integrity in the profession, but also um, that due diligence and research, research, research before you put your career in the hands of um, an organization like that. Right. Yes. Look at the 990 and guide star. Absolutely. hundred percent do that. Um, and so I'm also seeing people get a lot more choosy about, you know, what they're going to accept. Um, good fundraisers are hard to find the, the, according to the Bureau of Labor, um, we have a 9% growth rate faster than the rest of the uh, country. So we're going to need about 35,000 more fundraisers in the next uh, five to 10 years. Career so, opportunity you know, for everybody listening. <laughs> it's a total opportunity. You should ask for more. Um, but also, you know, vetting your organization, as you said, Greg, is a key piece. So, um, you know, aside from looking at the 990, uh, talking to people that currently work there, if you possibly can, and also, um, you know, asking them in the, in the interview a bunch of questions. And there, I've got five key questions you can ask in the interview, but I also have way more than that on my website. Also have a link just on careers um, and career pathing. Um, but if you want to hear some of the questions, I'm happy to share them with you. Please. Absolutely. Okay, so anyone can ask these. Um, how do you celebrate what's working here is the number one question. Love that one. The reason that you ask that is because you're really trying to think about what's the culture. You don't want to go in trying to change it. It's like going on a date with somebody being like, I can change them. You know? <laughs> yes. That's going to be a recipe for disaster. Right. Right. <laughs> so if they don't celebrate, you need, you need not take that job. Um, uh, another thing, uh, that you should ask in the interview is how willing are people to help each other here? You know, is it all hands on deck for our event? You know, are you going to help me stuff envelopes at 2am? You know, what's the deal, right? right? Uh, another one you should ask is, um, who will I learn from and how? So that can tell you if like the former like ED or DD left on terms and, <laughs> you know, how many, how much turnover have they had in the last five years? And then people say, it's not you, it's me. It's really them, you know? Yeah. So, um, 
the other, uh, you know, there's many, many questions you can ask. Another one you can ask is, um, what do you do when things get stressful? Mm -hmm. Because if they don't have a strategy for that, uh, that's healthy coping mechanisms instead of unhealthy coping mechanisms. You might just be in an office of like seething tensions all the time, which isn't very productive. And I think that that's um, important because what you're talking about is empowering um, fundraising professionals to take control and take ownership of their own career. And, and before you put yourself in a position that may be unhealthy or that may be toxic down the road, um, knowing what you're getting into upfront so you can make an informed decision. Right in the interview, and these could be for any job, not just for a fundraising job. Any job can ask these questions. Well, I'm going to flip the script, and I have a feeling I know what the answer is, but I'm going to ask it anyway. One of the questions I get asked most frequently is comes from nonprofit CEOs who say, mm -hmm. how can I hold on to talented development directors? I keep hiring really talented people, and they seem to move on. They seem to leave us far too often and far too frequently. Um, what advice do you yeah. give those folks? Yeah, well, I mean, you should pay them more. And if you say, I can't pay them more, you should say, how about you have them work four days a week or one day from home and three days a week or whatever it is, you know, um, see what they want. Ask them where would they really like to be in five years and how can you help them get there? Ask them, what would it take to make you stay? Ask them, you know, are we putting enough resources into your program? Ask them, do you feel like you're being supported enough in your role? Is there anything I could do for you? I mean, asking those simple questions question you really want to be in five years shows them that you care about them not them as a robot that wants to just work 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 for you until they drop i like and they've that. been burned before it goes back to what you were just talking about with empowering the um fundraising professional and i think sometimes uh, uh we are so afraid of losing talented people that we don't have those conversations for um and i've even heard executives say well i don't want to put the thought in their head that they may want to leave um, in reality, you're already thinking that, right? Everyone is thinking about yeah. what's in the best interest of their career. Um, asking those questions regularly and making it a, a regular part of the relationship between the executive director and the development director, rather than something that is out of the blue or a conversation we only have once a year during performance review time. But having that kind of honest dialogue, I think, leads to a more productive working relationship where someone is going to be more invested in the position in the organization. Yeah, I mean, if you've had turnover, you have to ask yourself, you know, did we do a good job with the exit interview? Do we have open and clear communication here? Um, and, you know, is there something that we're not doing that's making them leave? And, you know, money is just one aspect. Maybe they want to go back to school. Maybe they want more time with their family. Maybe they just want time to work on their side projects, you right. know, like, and I think one that really you touched on there, which, yeah, go on. you touched on there, is professional development. Um, mm -hmm. And having looked at the research, having looked at the data out there, um, there is a significant underinvestment uh, in the nonprofit community in fundraising professionals and giving them access to meaningful professional development to keep growing in their skills, which they then bring back to the organization. But I, I but I, also I, to your point, executive directors as well. Yes. There's underinvestment in executive directors too. Without a doubt. There's underinvestment at all levels of the nonprofit organization, if you look at the data. Yes. Um, and it, it comes back to it comes back to that money issue. It also comes back to boards and boards setting priorities through the budget. And budget is a reflection of their priorities. 
um, that reflect the kind of organization that they want to see. They want to see an organization with stable leadership that's going to require spending resources, capital, on developing that team so that they do grow, learn and grow together. Yes. And, you know, it, it boggles my mind that so many foundations that, that want capacity building don't think about how are we helping everybody learn how to fundraise. Right. And that's why I created Fundraising Mastermind Elite, which is a program that is 10 plus e-courses and about 70 different webinars inside um, from a variety of fundraising experts, including myself, um, that helps people just learn how to get it done. You know, like you've got your strategic plan in place. Awesome. Do you have your one page fundraising plan? Do you? Good. Okay. Now what about all the other little pieces that go into making that, you know, 10 footed um, stool? You know? <laughs> <laughs> back to the 10 legs on the stool again right back to that because honestly it's not just about the legs it's about the peeing those legs right absolutely maybe this is a bad metaphor absolutely. <laughs> maybe you could maybe talk to us a little bit about that you, you know you mentioned that you you work with fundraising professionals you work with nonprofit organizations tell us a little bit about that fundraising mastermind program and your mm -hmm. efforts to professionally develop um individuals in the in the in the profession Sure. Well, I just got thrown into fundraising like most of us. And so I had nobody watching me. I had no management. And so that's why I wrote my first book, The Wildlands Guide to Fundraising. And then I realized after I wrote it that, gosh, each chapter could be a whole course. How to make an annual report that makes you money, how to make newsletters that make people want to donate, how to find new donors, how to keep your donors, how to find more sponsorships, get a bigger sponsorship, how to, uh, you know, make your fundraising plan. That's the number one. How to get monthly donors. What about major gifts? You know, all of these things are inside what I have to offer because people wanted access to my brain. They didn't want to pay hundreds of dollars per hour, which is what I charge. And so I said, great, use this instead have fun. <laughs> and people have just gone gangbusters with it. So a woman came last year and she took this program and she went from $10,000 of their monthly giving for her Chinese charter school to $170,000 in one year. So it really works. Um, it, it, educating people works and you don't have to buy it from me, but if you do, <laughs> um, I, I have the testimonials to back it up. You know, like people you know, you don't want, most fundraising information I find is pretty tedious. And so I've tried to make it fun. There's jokes, there's, you know, there's pictures, there's, there's videos. Um, and there's just people who have been in the trenches like us, yes. Greg, just saying, yeah. this is what worked for me, you know? Absolutely. Mazarine, I appreciate you joining us today on the podcast. Um, for those who are listening who may want more information um, about your work with nonprofits or about any of the courses, webinars that you mentioned, um, give them a link or how they can get in touch with you. Sure. Well, I'm going through rebrand right now. So I'm just going to tell you to go to wildwomanfundraising.com and you can also go to mazarinetrays.com. So that's M-A-Z-A-R-I-N-E, trays, T-R-E-Y-Z.com. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Greg. I really, really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure. And if people want more information about careers or nonprofit leadership, I hope we can have those links as well. I have a whole pages and pages devoted to that. Absolutely. Mezzarine, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, and then before we wrap up, uh, for those who are listening to the podcast, I appreciate all of you. It has been so much fun. 
to see the numbers of the podcast growing, see the interaction and to receive the emails um, from listeners has been really gratifying to me. We have some exciting episodes in the pipeline to come, um, much like this one with Mazarine. I do want to encourage everybody, please continue to reach out to me. Um, you can find me on the web, my website at www.nielsenconsults.com or you can email me at gregory at nielsenconsults.com. Always interested in hearing what's going on in your organization, ideas and topics, and even guests for future podcast episodes. Mazarine, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Have a great one.